Galatians chapter 3. We're going to pick up in verse 15 this morning and just do the uh, verses 15 to 18 today. Galatians chapter 3. Please pull a Bible out of the pew if you don't have your own uh, with you this morning. We're going to we're going to look at this uh, pretty closely this morning. You know, one of my father-in-law's favorite uh, things to say when he was watching the news or reading the newspaper or that kind of thing, and he always said this with a, a tone of exasperation in his voice. He, Jack would frequently say, you can't legislate morality. You know, Jack said that Jack Dodson was my father-in-law. He was affectionately known by his grandchildren as J.J. Um, He was an ex-Marine. He was an engineer, graduated from Rice. You know, he was was an intelligent and and articulate man. And uh, he was uh, pretty firm in his opinions. Jack uh, always, uh, you know, was of the firm belief that it it was not more laws that we needed as a nation or as people, uh, but we need a personal commitment to morality. And I agree with Jack as far as that goes, but I would go a step beyond uh, what Jack used to articulate. I would say you can't legislate morality, but the gospel does change hearts. And that's really what we need. You know, what we found with our kids is you could post a, a list of, of family rules on the refrigerator, you know, and, and that list of rules, you know, could be like, uh, you know, well, don't bite your brother, uh, you know, don't, you know, clean your room, uh, you'll get uh, a dollar allowance uh, for every day that you do your chores, or what, you know, however, however you choose to do that. But that list on the refrigerator of rules of, of blessings and cursings, if you will, you know, blessings and the promise of discipline, if you will. That, that rule didn't create the desirable kind of behavior in there. I mean, it, it changed their behavior, but it didn't change their hearts. And that's not really what we're after as parents. We want our children uh, to, to have hearts that, that long to be right and, and good and proper. Posting rules um, is not pointless, but... And, and I think posting rules is, is good. When you go into someone's home and they have a list of rules for the kids, you know, you can tell what their expectations are. You can kind of tell uh, what their boundaries are, what, how they communicate as a family and that kind of thing. That's all f- well and good, but that doesn't change the heart. That really doesn't change the heart. You know, at the end of the day, those rules don't create the obedience that they demand. It's too bad, isn't it? You know, rules are like that. They they guide behavior, but they don't create it. Every parent knows that. You know, so does every police officer. I mean, let's just be honest. The United States, did you realize that we have over 7 million people in jail or in prison or on parole or probation? Um, But as a society, we've never had more laws on the books. Think about that for just a minute. Let that sink in. Obviously, laws don't create compliance. So as you think about the Ten Commandments, as you think about the law of God, the law that God laid down for the people of Israel on Mount Sinai, what about that? On Mount Sinai, God's people received God's Ten Commandments, the law of God. And it calls for righteousness, but it cannot 
create righteousness. That's the basic weakness of law. It cannot create within us the desire to do the very thing it demands of us. It can guide right desire, but it cannot give right desire. We need to keep that in our hearts and in our heads. As Paul puts it in this passage, the law cannot give life. Galatians chapter 3 is an important chapter in the scriptures this morning. The law's inability to give life is the thrust of what Paul is after here in this little short section that we're going to look at in Galatians and really in the whole book of, of Galatians as a whole. The law cannot do the most important thing. It cannot make us alive to God. It cannot make us right. Only the Father who gave life to his Son by raising him from the dead can give us life through the presence of the Holy Spirit and the kind of life that we need to have the life that God desires of us. We live in a world of laws, and that's a good thing. We have rules and ordinances and policies everywhere we look. In fact, we were teasing Tiffany this week, or I was teasing Tiffany this week, because she's working on our policies for our children's ministry. And so she's written a, a set of policies for us to uh, uh, work with. And, and I said, you know, uh, here I am preaching on grace and on, on uh, the place of the law, and you're bringing me more laws here. Uh, we need some more. Um, Poor Tiffany, it's just, it's hard to work with David and myself. I, I know that. <laughs> I really do. The law can't give us life. Just like the Israelites, we're prone to think we find life from the law, though, whether it's from man's law or God's law. You know, like fallen creatures, we're, that's one of our fundamental mistakes. We, we think rule keeping is the key to life. Think about it for just a minute. Just think back about when your children were little. How many times did your child say to you when you said, you know, Johnny, you can't do that or you shouldn't do that, but that's not fair. Isn't that because we're looking to obedience and to the law as a means for justification and for life? You know, we, we just fixate on rules, even though rules are not the source of life. We as parents easily assume and act that way too. Our children learn it from us. Well, as we think about those things, let's turn our hearts to the living and errant and fallible Word of God. Let's let God's Word speak to us about the role of law and grace in our hearts and in our lives. Let's give careful attention to the inspired and errant and fallible truth that God has for us for today. Galatians 3, verse 15 and following. Paul is in the middle of his argument about the role of law and about living by faith or works. And he's, he's actually at the conclusion. He's made three basic point, or two basic points. This is his third. He says, To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. 
The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. And we're going to stop there. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I ask you this morning that your Holy Spirit would remove the hardness from our hearts, would remove the scales from our eyes, and and would allow us to see and to feel and to know the life that only the promise of God can bring to us, the promise of life in Christ I pray as we pick up at the, at the end of Paul's argument after a few weeks of, of being away from this text that, that you would call to our minds the things that we need to remember so that this passage fits into its proper place. Oh, Father, give us a special measure of grace today to live by grace, I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so I want to do something I don't usually do this morning, and uh, I want to take a few seconds, and uh, I want to uh, do a little theology with you for just a minute. I want, to, I want to take a second and look at two views of how uh, we ought to view uh, the relationship between the law and grace. Okay, and in general categories, I want to talk to you about the difference between the way we view the Ten Commandments and living under the new covenant in Jesus Christ. And so, if you don't mind this morning, uh, let me just give us a, a few a few points of discussion. I'm not trying to get all theological, but but I think it's important that that I use this time. Uh, to set the stage uh, for what uh, we're going to look at here. I think it may be helpful for you uh, in the long term. There's a lot of discussion in theological categories, and there's a lot of discussion uh, in the world today about what kind of church uh, we ought to be a part of. Well, am I going to be a part of a church that, that uh, values the Old Testament, of a church that, that believes the Old Testament and, and that sees a, a sense of continuity between the Old and the New Testament? Or am I going to be a part of a dispensational church, a church that, that sees that God has worked in different ways all through uh, the time of history? And so this morning, let me take a second and let me talk about dispensationalism and about continuity and discontinuity uh, in the Old Testament and New Testament, okay? So <clears throat> dispensationalism, uh, which, is, which is a form of theology, um, teaches the most extreme pattern of discontinuity. They, they, they say that there is a, um, a real dichotomy a real division between law and gospel, between the Mosaic Covenant and the New Covenant, between the Ten Commandments and living by grace through faith, okay? Uh, What are the patterns of discontinuity and continuity? You know, dispensationalist teaches that um, there is little relationship between Moses and the New Covenant. That's just the easiest way to... to, um, to sum it up, dispensationalism taught uh, in the earliest forms that God offered salvation in the Mosaic Covenant to those who obeyed. 
You are saved by your obedience. You keep the law, you'll be saved. Modified dispensationalism, some came along a little later and wanted to tweak it, wanted to adjust it. They said that God offered salvation to those who obeyed in order to teach people that they could not be saved apart from grace. In the first form, the Mosaic Covenant, was a means of salvation. In the more modern dispensational theology, it served kind of as a probationary period, if you will. Kind of a precursor to salvation. Neither one believed that the Mosaic Covenant was part of the covenant of grace. That the Ten Commandments have any positive role in the life of believers. Think about that for a minute. How does that play itself out? Well, we don't have to pay any attention to the Old Testament. We don't have to pay any attention to the, the, the Ten Commandments and those kind of things because we're under grace now. And so dispensational churches have developed across time, and they focus on the New Testament, and, and they focus on Paul because Paul is the latest permutation of the, the New Testament, and, you know, that's the kind of the model of uh, preaching and teaching that you find in a dispensational church. There are lots of them, lots of them around today. There's a, there's a more recent expression of discontinuity, of division between those two, uh, between law and grace, that was taught by uh, a gentleman named Dr. Meredith Klein. Dr. Klein lectured to us when we were students at RTS in Jackson. He was a guest lecturer they brought in for us to uh, hear and to interact with as we were studying theology, studying systematic theology, and studying biblical theology. And Dr. Klein's view of, of discontinuity was kind of like this. He said, the Mosaic Covenant... The, the, the promises or the, the blessings and the curses that Moses received from God in the Ten Commandments was a covenant of works and not part of the covenant of grace. He conceded that God still saved people by grace um, though the time, uh, through the time of the uh, Mosaic Covenant, but the covenant itself was like a legal covenant. What Klein, I think, was teaching or was trying to teach was the idea that the, the law, the Ten Commandments and the law of God was like the laws of our United States, the laws for a nation, but not necessarily laws from the heart or for the heart. I disagree with Dr. Klein. You should have heard the student body interact with Dr. Klein. Yeah, I, I, wish you, I wish I could replicate for you uh, how, how what he taught went over, Okay. And then there's this other view, okay? I went to Reformed Seminary, and some of you who are attuned to theology and those kind of things have heard the term theonomy. Theonomy is, is the polar opposite of dispensationalism, okay? Theonomy teaches that there is almost absolutely no discontinuity between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, Okay? And so the Old Covenant, the, the Ten Commandments, and all the law of God are binding on us as Christians. They are the way we are to live, and there is great value in them. And I will tell you that I agree with them to a point. Now, these guys 
went all went, went whole hog and they said that we needed to abide by all the commandments in the old testament and and we needed to live that way they they argued that temple worship and sacrificial system uh that there was little difference between the mosaic covenant and the new covenant and all of that and they they found very little discontinuity it's interesting to me though some of the guys who held to theonomy and theonomy arose at rts and jackson when I was a student there, or just before I was a student there, we still had a couple of professors who taught that, and uh, they were since dismissed. Um, too high a view of the law. Um, theonomy puts the law in the place of, of uh, saving grace. I'm persuaded that both dispensationalism and theonomy are contrary to what Paul is teaching us here in Galatians chapter 3. Now, this, that, these ideas probably are, are more, I'm probably more attuned to these ideas than you are because of my own personal circumstances, going to Reform Seminary when I did, and hearing these professors and struggling through these issues for myself. So I understand that. But I think that we need to be very, very careful that we let the Scriptures teach us what is truth here. Um, Galatians chapter 3, in fact, indeed, the entire New Testament um, uh, teach something that is, that is contrary to both of those views. Paul is teaching us that there is value in the law. That there is a place for law in our lives, a place for the Ten Commandments, a place for the case law that are all throughout the Old Testament, but also that more importantly, the promise of the covenant supersedes the law. Let me see if I can begin to unpack that for us uh, today, this morning. If the law cultivates, culminates in a curse, then what's its law, what's its role in relationship to grace. The relationship between the Abrahamic covenant and the Mosaic covenant. The Apostle Paul is arguing with an illustration this morning. He's already, he's already uh, begun his argument here and, and from experience and from Scripture, and now he kind of turns to a, a human illustration. Basically, he shows us two things here, and I'm going to get these and you got it. You got the, the essence of what Paul's saying here. First, the Mosaic covenant, the Ten Commandments, does not nullify or alter the Abrahamic covenant. What was the Abrahamic covenant? Do you remember that? Genesis, David talked about it uh, the last couple of weeks. Genesis 15, Genesis 13, Genesis 17. That God would be his God. That he would, that he would raise up a people for himself. That he would give Abraham many children. That he would have an inheritance. He would have the land. And those promises were looking forward to their completion in the new covenant the mosaic covenant of the ten commandments doesn't do away with the promises that god made to his people through abraham and the mosaic covenant is actually subservient to the abrahamic covenant okay let me try to explain it this way uh, 
Some years ago, there was a woman who decided that she would will all of her worldly goods uh, to a particular college. And so when her children, after she died, when, when her children discovered um, that, that she had done this, they were livid. They, they were like, we can't believe that mom would do this. Uh, and they felt like the college had manipulated their mother, that, that they had taken advantage of her in some way, that they, you know, they had seen a little old lady and they had you know, somehow usurped uh, their role and their rights as children and everything else. So they contested the will in court. They went to court and uh, they argued this, that when, her mother's, when their mother's will said worldly goods, worldly goods applied to their mother's personal effects, not to her whole real estate, not to her whole will and everything else. The children lost the case. They could do nothing to change the terms of a ratified will. It was airtight. It was irrevocable. It was unchangeable. That's exactly what God's promises are like. And the word Paul uses to describe uh, that arrangement is an emphatic word. Uh, it's it's, it's, it's uh, the New Testament word, uh, diatheke. Okay? Uh, it's, it, means, it means last will and testament. So read this passage again with that in mind. To give a human example, brothers, even with a last will and testament, Diatheke. No one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. The will, the testament, has been given. It is set in stone. It is irrevocable. You cannot change it. It is a bestowal. It is a grant. It is beyond a legal challenge. God told Abraham what he would do. Not what he might do, but what he would actually do if, God showed, if Abraham showed himself worthy. Paul encourages us here, I think, by anchoring us outside of ourselves. Think with me for just a minute. If you've, if, if you've come to faith in Christ, how do you keep yourself in faith how, how do you keep yourself uh plugged in with god how do you keep that relationship with god is it by what you do or don't do is it by keeping the law is it by doing good works is it by being a good person is it by attending worship and sunday school and and training your children and doing all those kind of, is that how you keep your salvation or is there something beyond that that's what Paul is basically arguing here. You can't stabilize a ship in a hurricane-tossed sea by tying ropes to itself. Okay? You have to drop an anchor deep in the ocean. And it has to hold tight. Well, what God is doing here is he's saying the promise that God made to Abraham is like that anchor line that is set in the sea. It is not because we tie ourselves up with the law that we are able to keep ourselves. It is because we are anchored in the promise of God. That's what Paul is arguing here for us this morning. 
God's covenant promise to Abraham will be in place forever. It cannot be annulled by the, by the giving of the law, which came 430 years later, Paul says here. Therefore, your justification, your sanctification, your being right with God is eternally secured. It, it, is, it is safeguarded by God Almighty. It is, it is sworn to on the blood of His Son and it has been sealed by the Holy Spirit who's given himself as a pledge of our inheritance. Your anchor is in heaven, not on earth. Your anchor is in the promise of God, not in obedience to the Mosaic Law. Okay. Did I just give you a license to just live any old way you want to? Do anything you want to do. Just no. What I'm saying is, is that our salvation doesn't depend on our ability. When life gets difficult, when it falls apart, where do you look? Christ is still there. The promise is for keeps. Your anchor is not in, on earth, it's in heaven. It's in the life of the triune God, not in our fickle emotions and our feeble wills and our vacillating hearts. We need to learn that lesson. We need to know what it means that we can rest in God's promises to us. Christ is our anchor. Well, let me talk about the permanence of the covenant this morning. And, and Paul's describing a legal situation here. He's using a legal human illustration in verse 15 of our text. Throughout the chapter, he's been uh, proving that justification and that the Holy Spirit come by faith, not by works. Okay? That's been his argument in Galatians chapter 3. He, he's argued from experience, you know. The experience of the Galatians when they received the Holy Spirit. He did that in the first uh, five verses of this chapter. Um, then he argues from Scripture. In, in verses 6 and following, uh, Paul argues all the way down to verse 14, right before our text. He argues from Scripture the biblical record of, um, of Abraham, the man of faith. And then it comes to making the theological point, it always helps to have a good illustration. And so Paul gives us a human example here. And the illustration comes from the world of law that uh, they all lived in and in the Galatians' day that we live in as a society today. The law of how wills and, and final will and testament uh, w comes in, okay? When lately there have been several of you who have uh, been working on your estate, uh, doing your estate planning, planning your wills and, and doing those kind of things. That's a good thing to do. If you haven't done it, please do it. Please do it. Make your plans ahead of time. D take the time. Spend the money. It is a good investment, for we don't know what our days are. Well, the same thing was true in the days of the Galatians. According to the legal standard, legal practice, with a man-made covenant, no one can annul it or set it, set it aside once it's been ratified. The covenant, the testament, is permanent. The last will and testament is permanent. According to Roman law, um, uh, the, the whole idea, uh, Roman law was very similar to, to uh, our law, to English law. Uh, the, and Roman covenants couldn't be annulled. When, when someone wrote out their will and testament, their last will and testament, 
It couldn't be annulled. It couldn't be, it couldn't be, be changed or added to. A man usually, uh, usually was property owners were men, uh, would, could tear up his will, could, could write a new will at any time, or he could add a codicil to change the terms of his will. But the, with the Romans, it was only when the man died that his testament could no longer be altered. If Paul was thinking about that, then, then that kind of explains his language here. That's what he meant by ratified. A last will and testament was permanently settled at death. That's the way it works here in the United States. You can adjust your will all the way up to the point of death. But at death, that's it. No more changes, no matter what. Once an estate has gone through probate, it can't be divided. That's Roman. That was the Roman view. Now, maybe Paul's thinking about the Greek view. There's another view. It differed slightly from the Roman view of the law. According to the Greeks, a will could not be repealed or revoked. It could not even be modified. Once you wrote out your last will and testament, and you recorded it with the authorities, with the state, it was set. If you wanted to change it, too bad, so sad. If someone else wanted to change it, sorry, Charlie. It's not going to happen. It was irrevocable. Once the covenant was made it was and registered, it was set. Well, maybe Paul's thinking about the Greek view of a last will and testament as he's drawing a human example here. Maybe he's thinking in terms of the Jewish inheritance law. We may know a little bit about that. Jewish inheritance law, a Jew had a special procedure for making an irrevocable testament uh, prior to his death. It's called a, um, a maternat, maternat bari, M-A-T-T-E-R-N-A-T-B-A-R-I. Uh, and there's a great example of one of these maternat berries in the story of the prodigal son. You know the story, right? You know it pretty well, don't you? There was a man who had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. Was the father dead or alive? He was alive. He was still alive. But the son was asking uh, for his uh, maternat berry, for the irrevocable testament that couldn't be added to or taken away. It was his right to request it because it was guaranteed to him. It was set in stone. Paul may have been thinking about that. It's not certain which legal system, I guess, is, is really intended here. That kind of hardly matters. But in the legal system, in any legal system, there comes a time when the last will and testament cannot be, be altered. It's, it's settled once and for all. Either it's settled by death or by some official action. After that point, nothing can be done to change the terms. What Paul says is if that's true in a human court of law, if that's true in human terms, he's arguing from the lesser to the greater, is it not so much more true with the living God? 430 years before God gave the law to Moses, God made a promise, the covenant of grace, to Abraham. It is not going to be annulled. It is not going to be set aside. It is not going to be forgotten. Just as no one can set aside a human covenant that has been duly established, so it is in this case. 
Paul's argument, again, lesser to greater. The analogy, I think, is a great analogy. The promise is called a covenant. So think about the covenant. Let's think about the covenant for just a minute because I think it's important to... I think maybe my motor has been running longer than yours has on the text, and I, I want you to be sure that you're tracking with me this morning and up to speed. So what was the promise that God made to Abraham? Remember the story of, of Abram and Sarah, don't you? Sarai, uh, she uh, uh, was uh, old and barren. Uh, Abraham was older, and uh, he was uh, as good as dead as well. They were unable to have children, and God made him a promise. God made him a covenant promise. God did something that was incredible uh, with Abraham. It was a, a covenant that was properly established. It was a legal agreement. It was not based on a handshake. It was not based on a notarized piece of paper. It, wasn't, it, it was, it was, a, it was a, a ceremony where God cut a covenant with Abraham. You remember the story of the cutting of the covenant with Abraham? You know, remember what happened on that, in that mysterious event that takes place there in Genesis? See if you can put your, your mind around the picture here. It's pretty, it's pretty dramatic. It's, it's, it's way more than swiping your credit card through an e-reader or, or signing on the dotted line. The parties who are making the agreement would walk between rows of animals that had been slaughtered and split down the middle. One half on this side, right along the backbone, one half on this side. Okay, Blood was shed. It was the shed blood was, was making the oath sacred. They would walk between the slayed animals, and by doing that, the parties to the covenant were basically agreeing with one another, and they were saying, in effect, if I break the terms of this agreement, of this covenant, that is what you can do to me. You can cut me in half. You can shed my blood. Maybe it sounds like a scene from The Godfather, but that's the way they did it. Making covenant promises was important. In the case of the covenant with Abraham, uh, in the face of all of his anxieties, God put him into a deep sleep to show him the scene, and the promises were sealed in blood. Let me read a couple of passages, a couple of verses. Genesis 15 um, 9 to 10 and 17 to 18. God said to Abram, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. And when the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham. The animals were sacrificed. God passed between them. The covenant was validated by the shedding of blood. It was legally binding. And by the way, did you, see, did you hear it? Did you catch it? God is the one who passed between the animals. Abraham didn't do anything. Actually, Abraham is asleep. Paul's point is this. 
that what God covenanted to do for Abraham that night would remain in force forever. The promises that God made. I picked up a quote and I didn't reference it, I'm sorry. Paul regards the promise to Abraham as divinely ratified, as a divinely ratified settlement or covenant and argues from its considerable priority to the law that its provisions cannot be made null and void by the latter introduction of the law. Paul's argument, the covenant supersedes the law. So what exactly did God promise in Genesis 15? That Abram would be the father of many sons and daughters. He had promised him an inheritance and a land, many sons. Actually, the son, Messiah, would come through his wizened old codger body, through his barren wife, And he brought Abram outside and said, look toward the heaven. Number the stars if you're able able to number them. And then God said to him, so shall your offspring be. And Abram believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. Can you imagine that? How could God possibly do anything with somebody like Abram. It was beyond physical possibilities. There had to be more to it than, than Abraham could understand, let alone how was God going to save the world? How is God going to give uh, that which he has promised? We understand Abram's anxiety, don't we? You know, sometimes trusting God is, is really difficult. Sometimes resting in God's promises. We get overrun with issues in life, don't we? What happens when when unemployment depletes your savings? What happens when when struggles with unhappy relationships take place? What happens when when we experience poor health that threatens to take loved ones from us or us from loved ones? And what happens when we grapple with our children's deeply disturbing decisions in life? How, How do you cope with those things? We know in those moments how difficult it is to trust God. I think we know a little bit about Abraham's anxiety. And I think when we face those times, we look for an anchor. We look for a a surety. We look for a guarantee like Abraham did. When life's a mess, it's never helpful to be compared to somebody else's misfortunes either. I just tell you that now. You know, it's, it's worse to be told, oh, I know how you feel. Well, do you really? Do you, know, do you have all the baggage that I have? No one else can walk in your shoes and live out your own unique story. We need something fixed, something beyond the, 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 the scale that, that ranks us as relative to everybody else. Oh, so-and-so had this, and it's so much worse. Or, oh, you're, you know, so much better than that. No, that's not what we need. We need to anchor in the promise of God. God made an oath with Abraham and he will not break it. It is as if God says, I will not go back on my word. You will travel rocky roads, but they don't change the promises I've made. 
Nothing changes my promises, not even the law I gave. Trust me with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength and mind, and see how I keep my word. I sent my only begotten Son for you. That's how God keeps his promises. Verse 16 has always been one of those head scratchers for me. Now, I am not a, um, I, I'm not a grammarian. Uh, by any stretch of the imagination. And so uh, all the discussion about offspring and offsprings, offsprings doesn't even sound right to my ear, okay? It sounds like that's just wrong. It's bad grammar. You know, Paul, what are you saying here? And uh, I've struggled with verse 16 for a long time. Well, here's what I believe Paul means when he writes verse 16. Paul, Paul is showing how God's covenant with Abraham has something to do with us. As Paul had explained earlier in the chapter, we don't have to be biologically related to Abraham to claim our inheritance. Okay, now I'm starting to get it. All we need is faith in Christ. The true sons of Abraham are not identified biologically. So basically, if you are in Christ, you are Abraham's offspring. You're a good Jew. You're a completed Jew. You're the real deal. You're, you're, you're not just second, secondary. We have the same standing. The sons of Abraham are not biological, but Christological. The covenant promise was really that Christ would come and that when we belong to Christ, the promise belongs to us. Do you see it? Once you understand God's promise to Abraham as a promise to Christ, then the fact of the word, the, the word offspring it, it is a collective noun. And it makes perfect sense. A collective noun can refer to either a single individual or a group of individuals or, or to both. So it's with the offspring of Abraham, the promise refers to all and to a single individual, Jesus. In Jesus, we are Abraham's offspring. We're part of the family. We've been engrafted. We are party to the covenant. The covenant is Christ. Since we're in Christ, the promise is for us. Puritan uh, William Perkins wrote these words, The promises made to Abraham were first made to Christ, and then in Christ to all who believe in him. Jesus is the named offspring. We're the offsprings. God's intention wasn't simply to give Abraham some kids in a playground. It was to give salvation to the nations through his son. If blessings come through faith before the law, and if it is through faith that the nations are to be blessed, how could the law given to Moses annul God's promise to Abraham? Couldn't happen. Couldn't do it. And that's Paul's argument. How are the gospel and the law related Abraham and Moses are, are, are compatible. God doesn't make rules for different points in history. That's where the dispensationalists go wrong in a bad way. Oh, I love their, their love for the New Testament, their love for the Scriptures of the New Testament, and, and their desire to understand them, but you cannot understand the New Testament promises outside of the Old Testament. Please don't make that mistake of, drive, of dividing history into compartmentalized times. 
when you trace the covenant of grace, which is what we're talking about here, God's plan of redemption for mankind since before the foundation of the world, all the way through the consummation, we're talking about God's one story, his one plan, the way he would redeem you and me from our sin and from the curse. What does the promise begin? It begins in three, Genesis 3.15. And it, it's a covenant of grace, it's a promise that he would be our God and that we would be his people. It's elaborated on with, no, with Noah. It's not like, well, in Genesis, God kind of made these promises to Adam and Eve and, and then with Noah, you know, he, he had to adjust it because the world was so wicked and he had to destroy the world and all that. And then after Noah, we have the Mosaic covenant and then we have, no, they are not they're not chopped up pieces. It's not like somehow man messed up God's plan and he had to make a new plan. Give me a break. Our God has had one plan, and it's a covenant of grace, and it's been to save mankind from the very beginning, before creation, because Ephesians 1 says what? Before the, before the foundation of the world, God planned to save his people. One plan, one covenant, one promise that is over and above. What you have is you have a... You, Palmer Robertson explains it the best, I think. You, you have an increasing um, explanation of God's plan of redemption as time moves through, um, as time progresses. You begin with a little gem of an idea in Genesis three fifteen. And you get a little more with Noah. And you get a little more with Abraham. You get a little more with the law, with the Ten Commandments to Moses. You get a little more under David. You get a little more as time progresses. Christ comes, the new covenant is ushered in, and we look toward the consummation when all of the covenant promises will be fully realized. One story. That's what Paul's arguing here. He's saying that, that our salvation is not by our, we're not kept in faith by our ability. Behold, I am making a covenant, and all the people among whom you are shall see the work of the Lord, for it is an awesome thing that I will do with you otherwise. Uh, or, I'm sorry, observe what I command you this day, he says in Exodus 34. God is not setting out what he's going to do. He's not setting up kind of a quid uh, pro quo arrangement. God's promises have no strings attached to them. That's what makes it a great picture of grace. That's what makes it good news. If strings were attached to the covenant, if we, had to, if we had to be obedient enough to stay in the faith, then we could basically argue that we need justice. Lord, um, I did this. Where's my reward? Give me justice. Give me what I've earned. If God gave us justice, you know what we would get. H-E-double-L. That's what we deserve. Moses received God's promise in the same way Abraham did by faith. The difference between uh, receiving by faith and earning by merit is so clear in the story of Moses and in the Exodus, it's not even funny. Nothing in Moses' life, 
Nothing in Moses' story lets us think that Moses had it all together. I mean, think about Moses. You know your history of Moses? You know who he was? He was that fugitive murderer who on his first attempt at bringing about the exodus of the Israelites was a hot-headed 40-year-old, and it ended in disaster. Read about it. By the time Moses was 80, he had been following sheep around in the desert uh, on the backside of the Midianite desert for 40 years. He was almost weak enough at that point to be useful to the Lord. Even then he resisted God's call. Remember what Moses did when God called him to deliver Israel? But, 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 but God, I, 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 he didn't want to do it. Moses, to his dying day, had a problem with anger. He and Abraham were both justified by faith. That's what Paul's arguing here. The story can't be read any other way. Rather than replacing God's promise to to Abraham, the Mosaic Covenant portrays faith in a new situation. The law came as Israel was becoming a nation. They were moving from a family to a nation, and God gave them law. It was only given after they were were redeemed from Egypt. The The giving of the law was only possible after the Passover lamb. Did you catch that? Only after God had delivered them from the Egyptians and had delivered the Israelites across the Red Sea did the law come. John Piper put it this way, the law is a restatement of the Abrahamic covenant applied to a new stage of redemptive history. It is not an alteration. In both covenants, the way to obtain blessing from God is to trust him for his grace, life of faith. In both covenants, the faith which saves so taps into the power of God that it obeys. You see, obedience is faith showing its reality, being willing to walk around on a road that is unseen and trusting God. It's Abraham responding to God's uh, command, go to the land that I'm going to show you. Moses, to his dying dying to his own attempts to deliver the people of, of, of Israel, uh, even to uh, expressing his own inadequacy to do that. It's David trusting God for forgiveness in the face of his covetous, death-dealing adultery. It's you and me running to God's mercy in the face of, of our envious longing for our neighbor's uh, goods, for relationships, for success, for property. It's from that place of faith that we love because he first loved us. Genuine faith unveils itself in love. What does James say? James says, show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. True faith turns away from self and self-defined boundaries and walks God's road even when it's hard. You can't obey God without trusting. If you, if you trust him, that faith will be the root and the branch of your obedience. Anything that doesn't proceed from faith is sin, Paul says in Romans 4. The promise 
is for keeps. God promised to redeem you. God promised to redeem the Galatian people. God, God didn't tell them that they had to, to keep themselves in the faith by keeping the law of Moses. Oh, the Judaizers. They had come into Galatia and they had said, oh, you need to be circumcised. Oh, you need to follow the law. You need to follow the dietary commandments and the rules. And, you, you know, you'll be a better Christian if you do these things. No. We are saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. God isn't saying, once I taught you to trust me, and now I teach you to work for me. Once I taught you to rely on grace, now I teach you to earn your merit. Once I taught you to magnify me through uh, childlessness, and now I teach you to magnify yourselves through legalism. No. Justification is entirely anchored in Jesus Christ as the Son of God. New hope. Keeping the law or breaking the law will neither save you nor damn you. For all of us are lawbreakers. None of us are law keepers. What matters is that you've entered into God's covenant of grace. That you have the assurance of eternal life because you put your faith and your trust in Christ alone. It's not by doing good. It's not by keeping yourself good. It's not by smelling good or acting good. It's by faith in Christ alone. The life which we now live in the flesh, we live by faith in the Son of God who loved us and gave himself for us. Modified Galatians 2.20. That's how we walk in faith. The covenant promise that God made to Abraham is secure. It's not annulled by the Ten Commandments. It's not annulled by our clumsiness. God's faithfulness exceeds your greatest strength. It overcomes your greatest weakness. Cast your life on God's promises because they are yes. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray this morning that you would help us to be those who understand what it means to live by grace through faith in Christ. Father, to quit being those who are bound up by law, to, to take our eyes off of ourselves and to fix our eyes on Jesus, to live a life that, that seeks to glorify God and enjoy Him forever, that seeks to put God in his right place in our lives. That our lives would be an expression of the love of God that we've experienced. That we would live in obedience to Jesus. I ask these things in his name. Amen.